of the Father, Son, Holy Ghost, Amen. Direct all our actions by thy holy inspirations and care of the mind by thy gracious assistance, so that our prepared work of ours may begin from thee and by thee, be happy in through Christ our Lord. Amen. Our Lady of La Salette, pray for us. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Amen. I was a little nervous when Anne started talking about Our Lady of Fatima because that's partly what I'm going to talk about tonight. Actually, uh, the topic of the conferences is how to navigate the current situation in the church and in the world. So in order to navigate anything, you have to know where um, the various things are underneath the water, so to speak. So what we're going to do is I'm going to, instead of, I'm going to add commentary to it, but instead of me telling you the state of the world, we're going to talk about how Our Lady sees the state of the world from what she said in her apparitions. Because they already they actually give specific time frames, some of these, and so we'll actually get a sense of what she sees in our current situation, rather than it just being my own ideas, although I'll be interjecting them to give her support, so to speak. Okay. So I want to start with Our Lady of Good Success. This is in Quito, Ecuador. And Our Lady said to Mother Mariana on January 21st, this is in 1610, so I'm just going to make some quotes and I'm going to make some observations about how these prophecies became fulfilled in a, in a certain way. She says, quote, Thus I make it known to you that from the end of the 19th century and from shortly after the middle of the 20th century. So she's talking about somewhere in the 1950 to 1960 time frame in what is called the colony and will then be the Republic of Ecuador, the passions will erupt and there will be a total corruption of customs. The customs is how a society is generally structured in its behavior and what's considered acceptable and what is considered the norm for how people are supposed to behave. Okay, So there's going to be complete, basically, corruption of that. For Satan will reign almost completely by means of Masonic sects. This is in 1610, before Freemasonry even is officially founded, which is in the 1700s. And she basically says that the, that the Masonic sects will actually, Satan will reign through them. So when people say, oh, the Masons are just these nice guys that get in little go-karts go, uh, go and ride around with little hats on uh, and, and run a you know, children's hospital, the fact of the matter is, is that as a structure, it's Luciferian at the top and pretty much all the way to the bottom. So Satan's going to rule through the Masonic sects. So in other words, there's going to be different parts of the Freemasons, and, she, and Satan's going to rule through them. They will focus principally on children in order to sustain this general corruption. Okay, so what they're going to do is they're going to try and affect the children within a particular culture and in a society. Okay. We see this by virtue of the fact that um, the public education and the, man the manner in which children are educated today, we basically put them in a school system that is secularized, and we'll see what that means a little bit more later, and then we wonder why the children coming out of it, their ideas, they don't have a problem with socialism. They don't have a problem with communism, quite frankly. They're in support of communism, etc. And then we, we scratch our head and wonder why. She says, alas, um, how deeply I grieve to manifest to you the enormous sacrileges 
both public as well as secret, that will occur from profanation of the Holy Eucharist. So we're going to enter into a stage during this time frame. And remember, she's talking about um, a little bit after the middle of the 20th century. There's going to be a gargantuan problem with sacrilege in relationship to the Eucharist, which is pretty obvious. The very discussion of allowing people who are married or remarried outside the church, with, uh, that is usually by civil authority, without an annulment, that is, to allow them access to the sacrament of the Holy Eucharist, would have been considered 100 years ago absolutely foreign to the mindset of anybody that was, had any semblance of Catholicism. The fact of the matter is, is what's really being attacked there is that you have to be in the state of grace in order to receive communion. That's what's really the doctrine that's being attacked. And so this is something that's actually Our Lady is already, she's already in a certain sense talking about, it. not specifically that, but she's talking about how there's going to be this sacrilege that's going to occur. Often during this epic, she says, the enemies of Jesus Christ instigated by the devil will steal consecrated hosts from the churches so that they might profane this, uh, the Eucharistic species. My most holy son will see himself cast upon the ground and trampled upon by filthy feet. The amount, there is a, um, it was done by an exorcist who's not doing exorcism work anymore. He talks about the seven ways in which the Satanists are now stealing the Eucharist. And it's become a gargantuan problem. In the 1990s, the bishops collectively in Connecticut said that they were having a problem with the Satanists stealing the hosts. This was in 1990. So you've already got this huge problem going on, and more and more priests are starting to recount the, the, the fact that they're having to do more and more vigilance from the hosts being stolen. I don't know if you just saw, there was just recently a church where they literally came in and ripped the tabernacle completely off the wall and towed the whole thing off. Okay, so this is one of the things that's happening. Since this poor country, now in that particular case she's referring to Ecuador, will lack the Catholic spirit, the sacrament of extreme unction will be little valued. Many people will die without receiving it, either because the negligence of their families or misconceived affection for their sick ones. Doesn't this sound familiar? We just presume everybody's going to heaven. And so we never bother getting people the sacrament of extreme unction in the end. I often tell people, if I'm dying in a hospital, if a Eucharistic minister comes, I'm going to strangle them. No, I'm just kidding. But I'm going to be really irritated that a priest didn't show up. I'm not interested in a deacon coming either. He cannot do a thing for me. What I need is a priest to hear my confession, anoint me, which only he can do, and then I want to get the apostolic blessing at the end, right, so that I don't have to spend any time in purgatory. A bit of self-interest there, but there's, it's legitimate. All right. But the point being is, is is that we see this across the board. And now that, um, for example, now that the fact that assisted suicide is becoming more and more commonplace, in Colorado where I'm at, they just passed a physician-assisted suicide, this, the church is now dealing with this situation where Catholics are, are engaging physician-assisted uh, assist, uh, physician suicide and so there has to be a set of norms that the church has to start following in relationship to this because if a person intends to kill themselves, it's morally sinful, and so they can't receive the sacraments. 
you've got this problem that's coming up. But people today, too, don't say, oh, they don't need the sacraments. You know, Aunt Bessie was such a nice person. Surely God would let, you know, all that nonsense that we see. Part of this is also we see in the canonization of people from the pulpit. Technically speaking, a priest is forbidden to eulogize the person, according to canon law, they're forbidden to eulogize the person from the pulpit. They're not even supposed to mention the person's name during the funeral mass at the sermon. But it's just commonplace. As one I once said about this one woman, I said, I know for a fact that if I was to tell everybody how wonderful of a person she was, she would strangle me because she wants the, uh, the prayers because she's going to be in purgatory. We have no concept of that today. Okay. Others incited by the cursed devil rebel against the spirit of the Catholic Church and will deprive countless souls of innumerable graces, consolations, and the strength that they might... They, that they need to make great leap from time to eternity. But some persons will die without receiving it due to just and secret chastisements of God. In other words, there's some people that aren't going to get it out of a matter of justice. As for the sacrament of matrimony, which symbolizes the union of Christ with his church, it will be attacked and deeply profaned. Freemasonry, and again, remember, this is being said in 1610. Freemasonry doesn't get fully established, if I'm not mistaken, until 1771, fully established. But there's a bit of precursor in the earlier part of the 1700s. Which will then be in power, will enact iniquitous laws with the aim of doing away with this sacrament, making it easy for everyone to live in sin. This is Our Lady, 1610, to live in sin, and encouraging the procreation of illegitimate children born without the blessing of the church. Let's unpack that a little bit. It was the Freemasons in this country in the earlier part of the last century that pushed for the divorce laws to allow it. It is the Freemasons in this country that systematically being in control of the political apparatus in this country that were pushing for systematic things that would end up causing where we're at now. It's the Freemasons who are pushing for gay marriage, ironically enough. According to the CDC, the number of live births to unmarried women last year was 1.6 million in this country alone. 1.6 million children were born out of wedlock in this country. That is 40.3% of all births. 40% of children are being born illegitimately now in this country. And it's completely, completely acceptable. In some hospitals... I read a statistic a little while ago. In one hospital in Chicago, I think it was, oh, close to 80% of the children were being born to women out of wedlock. The number of people who live bef uh, together before they're married is clearly the vast majority. In fact, it's considered the conventional wisdom. Well, you gotta, you got to shack up first to see if it's going to work out. right? That's kind of the conventional wisdom. They already know that 50% of the people who live together the first time don't even end up married anyway. So these are not my statistics, by the way. These are the statistics that are run very often by the government or independent university studies. 76% of people say that living together before you're married is acceptable. 79.4% of couples today now live together before they're married. They're committing fornication, essentially. And it's considered perfectly acceptable. 
Although we do have natural inclinations. Most of them know, yeah, it's not quite right. We really kind of need to get this straightened out. Gay marriage. This is one of the ones that was pushed for, and it's being pushed worldwide by the Freemasonic control apparatus. It's, the sign, it's a sign, the very fact that we have gay marriage is a sign that our culture is by and large, because now 56% of people in our country think it's acceptable for homosexuals to marry. This is a sign of mass insanity. I'm not tongue-in-cheek here. If you 50 years ago, even 30 years ago, stood on a street corner and said, I think two men who happen to love each other should get to get married, they would have hauled you off to a rubber room. And this is a sign that literally, because what? Mental illness is something that your intellect isn't seeing reality for what it is. And this is exactly what's happening here. People are literally, we're literally living in a state of mass insanity. Part of this is also the fact that you have this, um, it's, it's a result of sin in large part. People are so sinful that it even says, you know, in, the, in Scripture that God, they, they, were, they had lived so sinfully that God gave them over to their passions and men started sleeping with men and women with women. So that in point in fact, there was this, it's the result of sin that people start to end up going down this road. I finally got the quotes. There's a Jewish text, an ancient Jewish text called the Midrash, and it's a commentary on various aspects of scripture, but it's basically, it's, the Midrash became kind of this quasi-authoritative thing among the Jews. And the Midrash was written shortly after Noah's flood, and it was written during a time frame, or sorry, about 500, let me take that back if I, if I, I need to correct myself. Hopefully I'm correcting myself correctly. It's something that's about 500 B.C. before Christ that the Midrash gets fully kind of put together, but it's something that's going on about 1,000 years before Christ up until um, about 300 years before Christ. This Midrash gets written. But the, the part that is that basically in the Midrash, they talk about how that the reason God pulled the plug at the flood, according to the Midrash, and this is the quote, because men began entering into contracts with men. It was gay marriage. Ironically, after the flood, what does God do? God then puts the rainbow as the symbol of peace with man. Right? Mind you, he just got done wiping out humanity because of gay marriage. And then, according to the Midrash at least, and then he sets up the rainbow as the symbol. What do the homosexuals take as their, as their symbol? The rainbow, which is basically kind of a, hmm, as they do in the Italian, you know, the, hmm, to God kind of a thing, right? It's kind of a in-your-face sort of thing in relationship to God. Then, of course, you've got the whole gender fluidity problem we've got going on right now. I mean, when I grew up, you're either a man or a woman. There was none of this discussion about, well, I think I'm half this or this or that. I don't know if you've seen it. But they, they now list 58 genders. How do you go from 2 to 58? Some of these, you don't even know what they mean. I literally, I literally when I read these, I'm like, I don't know what these mean. I had to look them up. So, for example, one of them is just called CIS, C-I-S. What is that? Or cisgender, cis female, cis male, cis man, cis woman. Gender fluid, gender queer. Neutroi, non-binary. What's non-binary? Does this mean you're neither one or the other? I mean, what does this mean? 
This is a sign that people are literally, there's this mass mental illness as a result of sin. We're living in an insane society. So part of the thing we're going to address is how do you keep your sanity amongst this insanity? At Fatima, Our Lady said, many marriages are not good. They do not please our Lord and are not of God. Which is true. You know, I worked on a tribunal for a very short period of time as a deacon, and the reason I did it is I wanted to understand the structure and the mechanism and how it all worked, to understand it better. And after I got done, I was noting a rather consistent statistic, which I talked to the person that was in charge of the tribunal, and I said, is this statistically the case? About 50% of the annulments, in the, well, there's 60,000 annulments in this country. That's generally the number that's thrown out there. And the question, so when I was looking at this, I said, is, am I observing the fact that over 50% or 50% of these are Protestants who married Protestants but now want to marry a Catholic? And the person said, yes. And then I said, and then the other percentage, uh, the other 50%, 95% of those are between Catholics who actually ended up marrying a Protestant. Now, this was a nun who was running the tribunal. I'm not saying it was necessarily good or bad or ugly. But she said, yes, and that's why I'm actually against mixed marriage. I'm like, wow, that's pretty something for her to say. If you look at the statistical average, less than 5% of the marriages that end up in annulment in this country are between two Catholics. Look at that statistic. It tells you something. There's a complete breakdown of the family unit right now, complete. There's an unwillingness of women to live according to the scriptures dictate to submit to their husband, the feminist movement, which, by the way, comes from the communists, and communism is the brainchild of the Freemasons. By the way, I'm not trying to pin everything on the Freemasons. They're only one pawn in this whole thing. Because of the feminist uh, movement, the women who are deeply into it, they're miserable. Men aren't being men at all today. In fact, if you listen to my conference on how to raise a man, there's not a single guy probably in this room that couldn't say, yeah, I've got this problem in relationship to effeminacy. It's not one. Well, guys like to say, oh, no, I don't have a... Yeah, just the lack of admission is itself a sign. Fathers do not require modesty of their daughters. While it's true that God created in women a natural inclination towards modesty, so women just by nature are more modest than men, or have a greater grasp of it, generally speaking, it pertains to the fathers to impose or to make sure that the natural law dictates of modesty are being followed. And here I'm not just talking about dress. On my way here, I was standing in the airport in Denver. Two women and a man walked by. The most foul-mouthed individual was a woman. Women are getting worse than the men when it comes to their language, which is contrary to modesty. Children are not taught any discipline. Electronics have worked their way into every aspect. It's fracturing the families. The mindset that the state has a right over the family. It takes a village. Really? You didn't submit your daughter to a village? That's what I wanted to ask the person who wrote the book. So... Uh, to raise or determine, and also it pertains to the state to determine matters regarding the children. It's completely false. The natural law rights over the children pertain to the parents. All of this is part of the communistic uh, infiltration, which we'll talk about here in a minute. 
Our Lady then goes on. She says, the Catholic spirit will rapidly decay. The Catholic spirit will rapidly decay. In other words, it'll look like there's this implosion in the church of this Catholic ethos or spirit. The precious light of faith will gradually be extinguished until there will be an almost total and general corruption of customs. In other words, the general public life, in, even in Catholic countries, will basically collapse. Added to this will be the effects of secular education, which will be one reason for the death of priestly and religious vocations. One reason, by the way. It's only one. There is a book, you've, some of you have heard me talk about it, it's called The School of Darkness by Bella Dodd. In there, she recounts in detail, this is not conspiracy theory, this is a woman who is in the bosom and actually one of the heads of the Communist Party in this country from the 1930s to the 1950s. She recounts how they systematically took over the National Education Association and the educational structure in this country. That's why I said before, kids today come out having no problem with communism. Of course not, because they're just being caught by communists, essentially. They all, she also counts the fact that they systematically took over large sections of the government. By the way, you know, the House of Un-American Activities, that was a legitimate thing. There was a lot of problem. What's ironic is, is, you know, they went after the people in Hollywood, and that was kind of their undoing. And then McCarthy, what ends up happening is he falls into, they, they basically poo him, poo poo him because he's going after these people. How later we find out they were all part of the Communist Party. Right, so, by the way, this isn't my theory. This is all stuff you can just find. It's all public knowledge. I'm just putting it together for you to support our lady's observations. She says, if my requests are not heeded, Russia, if my requests are heeded, Russia will be converted and there will be peace. In other words, if the Pope and other people do what they're supposed to do, then we'll have peace. If not, she, referring to Russia, will spread her errors throughout the world. By the way, this is at a time when Russia isn't fully off the ground yet. People, when they first heard this, like, Russia? What are you talking about Russia? Russia's a no-name backwater place. There's nothing going on there, right? Russia will be converted and there will be peace. Okay. If not, she will spread her errors throughout the world, causing wars and persecutions of the church. Her errors are not just communistic governmental systems. It's feminism, which comes straight from Vladimir Lenin in his interview with Zara, uh, Clara Zenkin. In there, he lays out the whole feminist movement, and it's completely rife and entrenched in our society today. The communists wanted to destroy, again, remember, this is the brainchild of the Freemasons, they wanted to destroy the family, which they did in in Russia. It was so bad in Russia, they outlawed marriage when the uh, communists first got in, but within a few years they realized, they saw the absolute economic devastation when you destroy marriage. So then they reimposed marriage. And then it was shortly after that that they realized that's when they outlawed homosexuality and things like that because they saw the economic devastation of it, which is why they're still against it today, ironically. It also got, so it, it caused the feminist movement, destruction of the family life, that the state takes over the education of the children, the undoing of, the, of all religion, that the religion has to be subordinate to the state, etc. Our nation, quite frankly, is thoroughly communist. You know how you can tell? 
when the primary consideration for the election process last November was the economy, the communists have already won. Because for the communists, the only thing that's important is the economy. Whereas, rather than the common good of the citizenry and the virtue that they're developing a relationship that should ultimately, in a Catholic mind of the state, be the most important thing. But that was nowhere to be found in our election process. Nowhere. We talk about draining the swamp. Well, what does that even mean? I was mentioning earlier to the ladies, when you drain the swamp, it gets to stinking real bad when you first start the draining process. And after it's drained, it stinks real bad for a while, and we're in that right now. The Sacrament of Holy Orders, okay, so this is back to Our Lady. The Sacrament of Holy Orders will be ridiculed, oppressed, and despised, for in this sacrament, the Church of God and even God himself is scorned and despised since he is represented in his priests. The devil will try to persecute the ministers of the Lord in every possible way. He will labor with cruel and subtle astuteness to deviate them from the spirit of their vocation and will corrupt many of them. These depraved priests will scandalize the Christian people, will make the hatred of bad Catholic, will make hatred of bad Catholics and the enemies of the Roman Catholic Church, uh, the Roman Catholic and Apostolic Church fall upon all priests. Let's back up just a little bit. We already know that there is this pedophilia scandal in the church. And the pedophilia scandal in the church, we need a little bit of history to see what this problem was. The pedophilia, actually, the problem of pedophilia in the clergy did not begin in 1980 or, or 1990s. It was actually a problem of the 40s and the 50s. In 1961, there was a document put out by the Congregation for Religious called Institutio Religiosorum. And in there, they said, stop ordaining the homosexuals and the pedophiles. This is in 1961. It was a private letter sent to all the heads of religious communities. It was because of the collapse. I have a whole thing on that. But it was a there was a collapse after the Second World War of morality the priests entering into the seminary, there was a toleration of homosexuality and pedophilia. It became a problem in the 60s and 70s, and that's why the litigation began in the 90s and it became a full-blown problem, or 80s, it became a full-blown problem in the 90s. This is what we're dealing with. But the scandal, the greater part of the scandal is not in the pedophilia of the priests. Don't get me wrong. My basic attitude is, once a priest is caught in pedophilia, he should, it, it, once it becomes clear that it's true, because you can't just throw priests under the bus like they're doing now, it has to be something in which, once it's clearly established, he should be immediately laicized, period, and then handed over to the civil authorities. But what did the bishops do? No, instead they moved him from place to place. <coughs> Bella Dodd makes the observation after she's converted by Fulton Sheen. She said that the Communist Party in this country alone got over a thousand communist seminarians into the seminaries in this country alone in the 40s and 50s. A thousand. Think of that statistically, what that means. Communism is the brainchild of Freemasonry. 
and it's the Freemasons that are pushing the gay marriage and all this pederasty and all this other stuff. But there's another component to it. There's a few. Most people, if you were paying attention to what was actually going on, not to what the news media with the smoke screen that the news media was putting up during the election process, because it ended up being a distraction. The second time in which Comey says we have to investigate Hillary Clinton was a smoke screen. And it was a smoke screen to keep people off of the last stage of the WikiLeaks. Because in the last stage of the WikiLeaks, two things come out, which we already know. The first is, is that the worldwide elite, among which are Clintons and Podesta, which was their uh, campaign manager, were involved in pedophilia. It's right in the emails. You can read it out of the emails if you like yourself. Second, so I'm not making this stuff up. Second of all, that Hillary Clinton was involved in the occult. And that's what they didn't want coming out. Okay. But I'm not, I'm not going to beat Hillary Clinton up. Christ will do a plenty fine job of that himself. What I'm saying is, is this. There was a book written in the late 18, uh, or sorry, in the 1990s by a gentleman by the name of John DeCamp. It's called The Franklin Cover-Up. And in there, we, it's, in the, it's in the late 80s, we start to first get a sense that this pedophilia problem among the elite and among governmental officials is a gargantuan problem. And I'm not just... Again, I'm not trying to over-exaggerate this. In there, this is a guy who's a former senator. He starts to catch wind of what's going on. So he starts doing an investigation and finds out that the FBI and the CIA were actively covering up heads of state from around the world's involvement in pedophilia. They were covering it up. And he tracked it all the way to the Bush White House. By the way, I'm not saying, and neither was he, saying that Bush was necessarily involved with this. We're just saying it got all the way there. Later as we go on, we start finding out that heads of states and that type of thing are going down to the Caribbean to a particular island, of which the Clintons are part of it, of which, in which they are actually, it's a place where they can engage in pedophilia. Then on top of that, we start to find out, so the camp kind of starts that process, that ball rolling of us getting a sense of that. Then we start finding out that many of the heads of state are actually involved in occult worship. There's a place called Bohemian Grove just outside of San Francisco, which there's overt Moloch worship, of which about 80% of the politicians currently in power in this country have been there and been through that ritual. Switzerland, a year, about a year ago, opened up the tunnel. I don't know if you ever saw that on TV. There was a tunnel ceremony where they opened up this tunnel, which cut off a significant amount of travel time. I love tunnels, by the way. But the ritual was overt Balfamet worship. Overt. And all these heads of state are just sitting there like there's nothing going on. The point being is, is that I'm trying to give you a complexion of what we're dealing with. You can't be satisfied with just, you know, like, leaving your own leading your own life and sticking your head in the sand. Not that I suggested you sit around and do the same kind of research. I, the only reason I get to deal with this is because I'm an exorcist and you just get all this garbage coming to you all the time and so you have to make some sense of it. And it's actually other exorcists who have actually helped me to uh, get a sense of that. The percentage of pedophiles in the clergy, and this is another thing, 
If you look at the actual statistics, and I've read three separate university studies that have done this, and they're all within the same ballpark, and they're all pretty consistent, and I think they're being fair. Of the priests that are actual pedophiles, it's only 1.25% of the clergy that actually are. But if you notice the way this came out in the media, by the time it was done, they had pinned that mindset on every single priest that walked along. But then, in the statistics, so it's 1.25%. Which, by the way, again, I think that the real mistake was, or the real scandal wasn't even the fact that there were these priests who were pedophiles. Don't get me wrong, the damage they did was incalculable. The problem is, is that it was how the bishops handled it. That's where the real scandal was. There was one diocese, I won't name it, because I'm sure they probably wouldn't like me saying it, who has never been sued. And the reason they've never been sued is there were two instances in which they found out about it. As soon as they found out about it, they immediately laicized the priest when they found, determined that it was in fact true. And then they went to the families and said, we are sorry, let us make, we will do whatever it takes to make this right. They've never been sued. The reason people were suing the church is because of the fact that the, the bishops were shuffling these guys around and not dealing with the problem. And not all the bishops, of course. But the next statistic is the general population, Protestant ministers fall within the general population, and so do rabbis, if I'm not mistaken. 2.75% of the population is, has a problem with pedophilia. So the actual number of priests that are pedophile is more than half, or less than half, of the general population, statistic of the general population. Of professionals, such as doctors, lawyers, uh, things of this sort, it's 8%. 8%. It's six times the percentage of priests. Six times higher, 600% higher. Of high school teachers, it's 10%. And the news media has full knowledge of this, and they are doing nothing about it. Because why? They're protecting this communistic system that they've set up. But the other part of it is, is that they they want to be able to make use. By the way, they knew about the pedophilia issues that had occurred in the Catholic Church at least 10 years before they broke the news story. They were just waiting to sit on it so that they could drag it out and beat the church over the head with it. Our Lady says, this apparent triumph of Satan will be, be, bring enormous suffering to good pastors of the church. The many good priests and the uh, supreme pastor and vicar of Christ on earth, who a prisoner in the Vatican will shed secret and bitter tears in the presence of his God and Lord, beseeching light, sanctity, and perfection for all the clergy of the world of whom he is king and father. Further, in these unhappy times, there will be unbridled luxury which will ensnare the rest into sin and conquer innumerable frivolous souls who will be lost. This unbridled luxury is a literal translation. It's not quite accurate. Luxuria, of which some of the other... Romance languages get their term, it's lust. So luxury in Latin is actually lust. And this is why Our Lady says at Fatima, more souls go to hell because of the sins of the flesh than for any other reason. Sister Lucia, the, um, the one who was the last of the living of the um, Fatima series, said this refers primarily to sins against chastity, also called sins of impurity. The reason for this statement is not because sins against chastity are the most grievous, but because mo they are the most common. 
as Sister Lucia said, because of conscience, since sins of impurity are less likely to be repented of than other sins. We live in an age where people are unrepentant. In fact, people have no shame. The definition of shame is the perception or fear of being perceived as lowly. People have no shame whatsoever. I get a charge out of my dad. He says, only in the United States do people stand up on public television and blow their guts about their sin. That's the exact quote, by the way. And it's true. People have no problem talking about it. I mean, you go into, you watch Maori, and he's got these two people, these, these, this, this woman, and they're trying to figure out which, which guy is the, the, the father of her, da- of her, of her, her son. And you're just like, doesn't she have any shame about this? She says, innocence will almost no longer be found in children nor modesty in women. Anne was observing that Our Lady said at Fatima, certain fashions are being uh, introduced that offend our Lord very much. The collapse of Mahdi is so profound in relationship to dress that even women who don't have the intention of being immodest don't have a clue of the fact that they're actually immodest. This is not an absolute, but it's a general guideline. Let me just read to you Pope Pius XI's standards. He says, a dress cannot be considered decent, now he's talking about in relationship to women, which is cut deeper than two fingers breadth from the pit of the throat, so it can't be more than down to here. Again, this is a bit fluid, but we're just talking about down here. Which does not cover the arms at least to the elbows, so it has to come down here and scarcely reaches a bit beyond the knees. Furthermore, dresses of transparent materials are improper. Okay. So there's this huge problem. I mean, and any time you just mention anything about modesty to people, the, the visceral response you get is profound. Our Lady says, during that epoch, the church will find herself attacked by terrible hordes of the Masonic sect. And this poor Ecuadorian land will be agonized because of the corruption of customs, unbridled lust, the impious press, impious press, right? And impious basically means they have, they have no honor and they don't care about honor and they don't care about giving honor to people who are above them and they have no respect for anybody. And secular education. The vices of impurity, blasphemy, and sacrilege will dominate in this time of depraved desolation and that one who would speak out will be silent. Okay, so remember, she's talking about our time frame and a little bit before. The spirit of impurity that will saturate the atmosphere in those times, like a filthy ocean, it will inundate the streets, squares, and public places with an astonishing liberty. That's what you see today. People think that, oh, I should get to do whatever because I have the freedom of expression and freedom of speech which, by the way, the church is condemned. There were all, uh, when I, one time when I was in Rome, I was standing on the bus. And um, it was just outside the Vatican, and they had an advertisement for the canonization of the saints. So I was looking at the canonization advertisement, and then they would very often put these various advertisements right next to each other. And right next to it was a washing machine with a completely naked woman. I'm like... Leave it to the Italians to put that right next to this, right? Okay. So I look down, and on the floor, there's these, there's these pamphlets that have immodest women on. Okay, so I look up. Up there, there's advertisements within modest women. 
So then I said, okay, well, I'll just, and then I look around and the women dressed are immodest. I said, okay, so I said, I got, okay, I get the point. <laughs> custody of the senses isn't enough. You have to have custody of the mind. Okay. The point being is it's just saturated, and you see that with our culture today. There will be almost no virgin souls in the world. Virginity is not valued at all today, at all today. In fact, it's kind of impugned and looked down on. She goes on. How the church will suffer on that occasion, the dark night of the lack of a prelate and father to watch over them with paternal love, gentleness, strength, and prudence. Many priests will lose their spirit, placing their souls in great danger, praying insistently without tiring, weep with bitter tears in the secrecy of your heart, imploring our celestial Father that for love of the Eucharistic heart of our most holy Son and His precious blood shed, which will generous with, sorry, with such generosity and with profound bitterness and sufferings of His cruel passion death, he might take pity on his ministers, on the priests. See, if you remember, at La Salette, Our Lady made the reference. She said, um, she, this is what she says, the priest, ministers of my son, this is her quote, the priests, by their wicked lives, by their irreverence and their impiety in the celebration of the holy mysteries, in other words, they were saying mass sloppily and without devotion or attention, by their love of money, their love of honors and pleasures, and the priests have become cesspools of impurity. This is in 1832. 1832. Yes, the priests are asking vengeance, and vengeance and hanging over their heads. This is Our Lady talking. Woe to the priests and to those who dedicated to God, who by their unfaithfulness and their wicked lives are crucifying my son again. The sins of those dedicated to God cry out towards heaven and call for vengeance. And now vengeance is at their door, for there is no one left to beg mercy and forgiveness for the people. The principal function of a priest is to stand and give sacrifice at the altar in propitiation for the sins of his sins and the sins of the people. There are no more generous souls. There is no one left worthy of offering a stainless sacrifice of the eternal for the sake of the world. St. John Eudes makes the observation, he says, the greatest chastisement that God can mete out on a people is giving them bad priests. What's that mean about us today? We also know, at Akita, Our Lady said, Quote, the work of the devil will infiltrate even into the church in such a way that one will see cardinals opposing cardinals. And bishops against bishops sound familiar. The priests will venerate me. The priests who venerate me will be scorned and opposed by their confreres. Churches and altars will be sacked. The church will be full of those who accept compromises. You see that all over the place, and you see it among the clergy. You really have to pray for the priests because a lot of times they're between a rock and a hard place. And the reason that between a rock and a hard place is, is if they really speak out and do the will of God, the bishop's going to come down on them like a ton of bricks. And then to top it off, so will the laity, because a lot of the laity are not interested in Catholicism in an unadulterated fashion. And the demon will press many priests and consecrated souls to leave the service of the Lord. Paul VI used to, every, on, I think it was the, was it the first Friday? It was, there was a particular Friday, I think, of the month, 
where he would sign, or is it maybe is every twice a month, he would sign the documents laicizing the priests who wanted to be laicized because they wanted to get married. And he said that, you know, he, basically they said he would cry as he's doing this, right? Well, then my theory is, quit doing it. <laughs> All right. The thought of the loss of so many souls is the cause of my sadness, Our Lady says. If sin increases, increase, if sins increase in number and gravity, there will no longer be pardon for them. We also, by the, in the sense that the, spirit, the clergy will lose their spirit, it's not just in the sense of an apostolic zeal for the salvation of souls, which is really true. You, just, you rarely see a priest who really wants to, that works hard and tiring for the sake of people, for the salvation. But it's also a fact that we now live in a period of modernism. Modernism is defined as the synthesis of all heresies. Now, what that, what that means is, is that because the foundational principle of modernism is that I make myself and what I think and I feel the standard or principle for what is true or right for me rather than an objective external magisterial teaching, because of that, then cafeteria Catholicism is the direct result of that. Because people are going to pick and choose the things that they like that fit them, rather than adhering to whatever the church says. And that means that there's not a single heresy that isn't resurfacing. Every so often I'll read some new theologian, I'm like, well, that was the heresy of subordinationism, or that was this heresy, or that heresy. You just, you'll start looking at it, and you just realize it's just proliferating. <coughs> Orthodoxy, by orthodoxy we mean right belief. Now, right belief means there's a standard, a rule external to you to which you have to compare your faith to make sure that it's adhering to the truth. Christ gave us the standards in the magisterium through revelation, passed on in an uninterrupted right, even to today. and still get access to it. And that standard of orthodox, that standard, which is orthodoxy, is that you have to adhere to the authentic magisterial teachings. Okay, That's an open attack. And it's not just by the laity. You've got cardinals attacking the church's constant teaching and bishops attacking the constant church's teaching. And you've got them attacking the teaching, which not, is not just stuff that came from the fathers and doctors of the church, but came from people like John Paul II even. They're attacking that. And by that I mean in the fact that there was a particular set of teachings that John Paul II gave and set them out, and all he was doing was telling everybody and giving greater clarity to what the church had always taught, but now those are openly being rejected. But this means, too, that the, the, the heresy of modernism is so absolutely rife in the church. Modernism is so rife in the church, it's so much in the atmosphere, that unless you have an extraordinary philosophical and theological background, or unless you have an extraordinary grace, you are simply going to fall into it. We're going to talk about what that antidote to that is later. There is a complete collapse in philosophy and theology. Someone made the observation to me, which, by the way, I've been making since I was ordained. There's no great theologians anymore. You know, there's no Gerlugu Lagranges, there's no Fabros, there's no Thomas Aquinas, there's no um, Albert the Greats. There's none of that. None of that's there. Suarez or St. Robert Bellarmine. None of that. There's no one that you can actually point to and say, this man is a great theologian. Now, there's some guys that are very intelligent, but that's another matter. 
that's scary, frankly, in a time of such doctrinal compromise and obscurity. And even if there was a great theologian, people aren't interested in following what he has to say. Because they want what they want. They want their ears tickled as it says in Scripture. At La Salette, Our Lady said, quote, The vicar of my son will suffer a great deal, because for a while the church will yield to large persecution, a time of darkness, and the church will witness a frightful crisis. The La Salette's in the 1800s. Our Lady herself is describing, I think, this time frame as a crisis. And this is, you know, some of the are not in a crisis. Look, again, I'm not trying to get into any kind of experience. I'm just saying, look, this is the way Our Lady is seeing this problem. And if this isn't a crisis, God have mercy on those people at that time. Because I don't see how they could survive anything worse than this. In an age in which we're so sinful, which, by the way, the problem of contraception hasn't even been talked about. That's just a gargantuan problem. Do you know how we know the statistic that 95% of Catholic couples either have or are currently using contraception? It came from Bill Clinton. When he was in office, he, he decided, I want to know how strong of a political voting block the Catholics are. So he did a study and found out, it was that study that he had commissioned while he was in the presidency that found out that 95% of Catholic couples either are currently or have used contraception sometime. When he saw that, he realized the Catholic Church is compromised and they're not a solid voting bloc. And then he was able to divide and conquer. So we, we do all this sin. Do we honestly believe that somehow or another we're so special we're not going to get punished? Shortly before he died in 1226, St. Francis called the members of his order together and gave him this prophecy. This is St. Francis. And I'm going to read a, a large part of it. Not all of it, but a large part of it. He said, Act bravely, my brethren. Take courage and trust in the Lord. The time is fast approaching in which there will be great trials and afflictions, perplexities and dissensions, both spiritual and temporal will abound. The charity of many will grow cold. By the way, our Lord said this. He said, in the end times, men will become lovers of pleasure and charity will grow cold. And the malice of the wicked will increase. The devils will have unusual power. Okay, before we go on. I can testify to that as an exorcist. One of the things that we have noticed as exorcists is the resilience of the demons now is unprecedented in getting them out. Historically, when you talk to priests that, and when I was first being an exorcist, I actually had the opportunity to talk to a couple of these guys who had been exorcists back in the 50s and 60s. And they said, before the mid-60s, when you got faculties for a case of possession, it was over. Within a day to two days, 90% of the time the demons were out. Maybe on the outside a week. Maybe. The fact that the, in St. Louis the case lasted 59 days boggled everybody's mind that it lasted that long. The average case of possession now takes somewhere between 10 months and two years to break. And the demons are extraordinarily resilient to your prayers. 
in ways that actually say, oh yeah, we never saw that in the past. So that being the case, he says the immaculate purity of our order, he's talking about the Franciscans and others, will be so much obscured that there will be very few Christians who obey the Supreme Pontiff and the Roman Church with loyal hearts and perfect charity. Which you see, even if they believe what the Church says, their lack of charity for the Holy Father is quite astounding, frankly. It doesn't matter if he's doing something wrong. That doesn't mean that you can sit there and beat him over the head. It's a lack of piety. At the time of this tribulation, a man not canonically elected will be raised to the pontificate, who by his cunning will endeavor to draw many into error and death. The scandals will be multiplied, our order will be divided, and many others will be entirely destroyed because they will consent to error instead of opposing it. There will be such diversity of opinions and schisms among the people. You see that. You can't even get three Catholics to agree on even the basics of the church's teaching. With a certain amount of disgust, but also a certain amount of entertainment value, I will go on to the blogs once in a while and just see what people are talking about. Some guy gets up there and says, well, at the Council of Trent, it says X. And he'll just quote Council of Trent. Then you will have 45 pages of people disagreeing and fighting over that. I'm like, really? You can't even agree, you know, on this? Then scandals will be multiplied. Okay. The religious and the clergy that accept those days were shortened uh, according to the words of the gospel. Even the elect would be led into error, where they're not specially guided amid such great confusion by the immense mercy of God. So there's going to have to be special graces that people are going to have to get in order to navigate these kinds of bad situations. Those who persevere, their fervor... Uh, oh, sorry, who preserve their fervor and adhere to virtue with love and zeal for the truth will suffer injuries and persecutions as rebels and schismatics. We saw that just recently. You have cardinals trying to openly change church teaching and then turn around and say, if you don't adhere to that, you're a schismatic, you're a dissenter. Excuse me? You're the guy that's rejecting the church's constant teaching. Urged on by evil spirits, will say they are rendering a great service to God by destroying such pestilent men from the face of the earth. In other words, priests and clergy and lay people who are trying to adhere to the church's teaching will be seen as pests, basically. Some preachers will keep silent about the truth and others will trample it underfoot and deny it. Sanctity of life will be held in derision even by those who outwardly profess it. Pretty true, I think. Now, this next line is very formal. Whenever you listen to prophecy, you always have to interpret it formally. That is, exactly what the words are saying and not trying to extrapolate. For in those days, Jesus Christ, now keep this in mind, Jesus Christ is doing this. It's not, he's permitting it. Jesus Christ will send them, not a true pastor, but a destroyer. Christ is going to put an end to the nonsense. And basically what this means is, is that Christ is going to, it's like the alcoholic. If you've got a problem, it's not until you admit you got the problem that you're going to get it straightened out. And so Christ is going to send somebody in there who everyone's going to stand back and say, okay, we got a problem here. And so, they're, and they're going to have to actually deal with it. So what about the other issues in society? This doesn't even begin to scratch the surface of fraud in our country. Fraud is the daughter of avarice, which is the vice of our country. 
And how do we know we're living in fraud? You've heard me say this before. Fractional reserve lending. You've heard me talk about this. A bank lends you a million dollars. They only have to. They only have to have in the bank a hundred thousand dollars, and the and the Federal Reserve and government let them literally write a zero or punch a button and put an add another zero on that and then give you that. That's total fraud. They don't have the money. Private ownership of national currencies. This means that the entire common good of a nation is subject to private individuals' control of the finances. It's pretty serious. General population living off debt. They say now that most people never pay off their house. Climate change. We're hearing all about that, right? Even when they get caught faking the numbers and the data, they still keep pushing it. In a certain sense, I think we kind of live in the age of fairy tales, right? People have bought into all sorts of theories. In fact, it even Christ even predicted it. He said, in the end times, they will be, they will be carried off by fairy tales. In Latin, the word is fabulantor. They'll be carried off by fairy tales. Intellectually, this is what's happening in the scientific community. Some of the stuff that you hear coming out of the scientific community, and you're like, well, the first time I heard about string theory, I just started laughing. I'm like, they're just making this stuff up, right? It sounds nice, but it's just absurd. You've already heard, you already know, I speak out against evolution. Not only because it's actually against certain, it's actually against the Fourth Lateran Council of the Catholic Church, but it also is contrary to rational principles, and it's not even supported by the science. Then you've got the rights of animals. Now they're talking about animals having their own rights. They're, they're scratching their head, should this ape actually get rights so that he can sue people, you know? <laughs> the rights of the environment of our Mother Earth. Excuse me? The reason we take care of the Earth is it's a matter of justice to other people and to give glory to God, not because this thing somehow has a right or it's its own living entity. Freedom of speech, condemned by the Church, Leo XIII and Libertas Prestantissimum. The fairy tale that there's a free marketplace. There is no such thing as a free marketplace. How do we know that? Either the government has to control people from using their economic might. What happened in this country? If you go back and look at this country with with the uh, oil or, uh, oligarchies and, and several uh, and the, the central banking and several other things in this country. They used their economic might to destroy the competition. So if you let, if you say there's to be no governmental restraint whatsoever in the free marketplace, what you will end up with is some guy amassing enough wealth to where by that wealth he can destroy anybody who gets in his way. As J.D. Rockefeller said, competition is a sin. All right? And that's what you end up with. So either the government's got to control it, or you're going to end up with people just, just rolling over everybody, barreling over them. There was a, uh, in relationship to politics, there was a great, um, there's a uh, cartoon called Nine to Five. And in there, so this guy's walking next to this uh, woman co-worker, and he says, hype, spin control, alternative facts, fake news. I wish they would just call this for what it is, lying. Right. If you watch what's actually going on at the at the political level, this is unprecedented. You don't have a guy coming into office, and I'm not saying that Trump is perfect, but you don't have people in a 
in a non-stop feeding frenzy, trying to pin anything they possibly can, making stuff up, doing stuff consistently, and thinking it's okay and justified to do so. What Katrina taught us is we do not live in a virtuous society. Look what happened to Katrina. What did it do? It degenerated into mobs and gangs going around and pillaging and killing people and stealing their food and taking their guns, etc. That's our culture in a nutshell. At La Salette, Our Lady said, all the civil governments will have one and the same plan. This is Our Lady saying this, not me, not some guy in a conspiracy theory. This is Our Lady saying this. All the civil governments will have one and the same plan, which will be to abolish and do away with every religious principle to make way for materialism, atheism, spiritualism, which is another name for the occult activity, and vices of all kinds. At Akita, Our Lady said, in order that the world might know his anger, the Heavenly Father is prepared to inflict a great chastisement on all man. Today we poo-poo this, oh, we don't necessarily, there's no such thing as chastisement. We don't have Look, you act badly and God is going to, to spank you because he loves you and he wants you to get your act together. Our Lady said, as I told you, if men do not repent and better themselves, the Father will inflict a terrible punishment on all humanity. It will be a punishment greater than the deluge such as one will never have been seen before. Fire will fall from the sky and wipe out a great part of humanity, not a greater part, which means we know it's not going to be more than 50% of the population worldwide, but it's going to be a large percentage. The good as well as the bad, sparing neither priest nor faithful. Keep that in mind when we talk about how do you prepare for this? How do you prepare for what's going on right now? And then if God decides to, to punish us, the survivors will themselves be so desolate that they will envy the dead. That's how bad it's going to be. What this all means, especially when you watch like what's going on in the, in the um, when you look and see what's going on in the political sphere where there's this kind of this feeding frenzy and there's this fight. It's, it's, it's a turf war. You see it. Just standing from the outside, you see there's this gargantuan turf war. It's basically fine. But what it really tells you is, is this. For the longest time, we kept being told by people that really these differences of ideas was a battle over ideas. I do think with some people that's actually true. There's some people who it's kind of an intellectual thing and they're trying to battle the ideas out. But I've come to the conclusion that that was just the facade for the evil people to push the process in the battle against good and evil. If you don't think that we're in the midst, politically, in the church, and, uh, and the families and everything, if we're not in the middle of the battle between good and evil, this is not a battle of ideas anymore. This is a battle over good and evil. And what the outcome is going to be is, is largely dependent upon us. If we pray, do penance and sacrifices, which we'll talk about later, we might get out from underneath this problem. One of the things that people have to realize is, is that people have this idea that God because of Christ's sacrifice being infinite upon the cross, that he's just constantly showering, giving everybody all these graces and everything that's going on. We don't have to worry about it. We don't have to do much because God will always give everybody the grace. It's just garbage. The fact of the matter is, is that a vast portion of the graces come into the world by our prayer, sufferings, and good works. All, in fact, they used to say that the mass was limited intensity. It had a limited intensity to it, which basically meant what? That even though Christ's 
passion sufficed to perfect everything in the world. His intention was that it came primarily through the mass and filtered through that to the rest of the people. And that, that how much the value of each mass or the, uh, the merit of each mass and also the merit of our prayers, it's obviously coming from Christ's passion, but it, it comes into the world. They used to say, because the Catholic Church is the mystical body of Christ, all this stuff of participation theory, which is another heresy that was started by the Protestants in 1857, that there's these various churches, or one church, of which various churches participate in varying degrees. But this, the fact is, is that they used to say all grace comes into the world by means of the Catholic Church. Another way they used to phrase it is, as the church goes, so does the world. When you're looking at the state of the world, you're really beginning to realize we have a big problem in the church. And we need to start doing some introspection and seeing what we need to do to get it straightened up. Okay. If you'll kneel, I'll give you a blessing. Benedicto de omnipotentis, patris et filii, et spiritus sanctions, supervos et monis semper. Amen.